Welcome to Cineversary, a new podcast that celebrates a milestone anniversary of a cinematic classic. Every month we wish a happy birthday to a different film currently observing a joyous jubilee. Everything from a 20th all the way to a 100th anniversary. I'm your host, Eric Martin, creator and moderator of the Cineverse Film Discussion Group that meets weekly in the Chicagoland area. Now this month we're honoring the 70th anniversary of a milestone masterpiece of world cinema, Bicycle Thieves, directed by Vittorio De Sica. And like any good birthday party, we invite special guests to partake in the commemoration. This month, I'll be joined by Jacqueline Reich, professor and chair of the Department of Communication and Media Studies at Fordham University and a renowned scholar of Italian cinema. Together, we'll talk about why Bicycle Thieves is worth celebrating all these years later, its cultural impact and legacy, what we can learn from the picture today, how it stood the test of time, and more. Prior to that, I'd like to get you up to speed on how, when, where, and why this movie was made. Per Wikipedia, Bicycle Thieves, also known as The Bicycle Thief, is a 1948 Italian drama film directed by Vittorio De Sica. The film follows the story of a poor father searching post-World War II Rome for his stolen bicycle, without which he will lose the job which was to be the salvation of his young family. Adapted for the screen by Cesare Zavattini from a novel by Luigi Barlini and starring Lamberto Maggiorani as the desperate father and Enzo Steola as his plucky young son, Bicycle Thieves is widely regarded as a masterpiece of Italian neorealism. It received an Academy Honorary Award in 1950, and just four years after its release, it was deemed the greatest film of all time by Sight and Sound magazine's poll of filmmakers and critics. Fifty years later, the same poll ranked it sixth among the greatest ever films. It's also one of the top ten among the British Film Institute's list of films that you should see by the age of 14. It currently holds a 98% fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes, where it has also earned an average critical rating of 9.1 out of 10. The movie was released on November 24, 1948 in Italy, and then three weeks later in the United States. Its original budget was estimated at between $81,000 and $133,000, and it took in a gross of over $371,000. Bicycle Thieves is the best-known work of Italian neorealism, a movement begun by Roberto Rossellini's 1945 Rome Open City, which attempted to give cinema a new degree of realism. De Sica had just made the controversial film Shoeshine and was unable to get financial backing from any major studio for the film, so he raised the money himself from friends. Wanting to portray the poverty and unemployment of post-war Italy, he co-wrote a script with Cesare Zavattini and others using only the title and few plot devices of a little-known novel of the time by poet-artist Luigi Bartolini. Following the precepts of neorealism, De Sica shot on location only, that is, with no studio sets, and cast only untrained non-actors. Lamberto Maggiorani, for example, was a factory worker. That some actors' roles paralleled their lives off-screen added realism to the film. De Sica cast Maggiorani when he had brought his young son to an audition for the film. He later cast the eight-year-old Enzo Staiola when he noticed the young boy watching the film's production on a street while helping his father sell flowers. The film's final shot of Antonio and Bruno walking away from the camera into the distance is an homage to many Charlie Chaplin films. Chaplin was De Sica's favorite filmmaker. Now, to whet your appetite, let's give a listen to the American re-release trailer made in the 1970s. Seeker's greatest triumph and most famous film, The Bicycle Thief. This is the film found on every 10 best list for a quarter of a century, having captured every honor the world of film can bestow. 
including an Academy Award nomination for Best Screenplay and the coveted Oscar for the Best Foreign Film. In 1965, Stanley Kubrick, John Huston, George Seaton, Joshua Logan, King Vidor, and Fred Zinnemann, among other American directors, voted The Bicycle Thief second place in the 10 best feature films of all time. Critics, performers, and moviegoers alike have had nothing but praise for every aspect of this, the highest point of neorealistic filmmaking. Academy Award winner Marlon Brando observed, The Bicycle Thief is a perfect example of what can be done before the motion picture camera, and is so rarely done. Pulitzer Prize playwright Arthur Miller has written, The Bicycle Thief happens to be a lyrical masterpiece. Unafraid to examine openly the destructive world man has made for himself. This picture, above all others, performs the central function of art. Without warping the life it depicts, it discovers the meaning of that life. It is as though the soul of a man had been filmed. Actor Cliff Robertson reports, The Bicycle Thief is the finest motion picture I have ever seen. The first lady of the American theater, Helen Hayes, said, The Bicycle Thief is a perfect work of art. I laughed, I cried, I sat on the edge of my chair. I was so moved by the whole picture, remarked Henry Fonda, I was tempted to write to Sika a fan letter. Garson Kanan, director and author, stated, I have never seen a finer motion picture than The Bicycle Thief. All these accolades and acclaim cannot describe the actual experience of seeing this film and becoming part of its emotional impact. In our film-conscious society, too many films have been labeled classic. The Bicycle Thief is much more. This is the film for all seasons, and above everything, a film for the entire family. Ageless cinema for every age. All right, now it's time to introduce my guest, Fordham University professor Jackie Reich. Welcome, Jackie, and thanks for being a guest on Cineversary. Thank you. So when and where did you first see Bicycle Thieves, and why is this movie important to you? All right, I have a great story about first seeing Bicycle Thieves. I was a graduate student at the University of California at Berkeley, and every Wednesday night they would have classics, or Wednesday or Thursday, it was a long time ago, they would have classics of world cinema. And there was Bicycle Thieves. I think it was a double feature with maybe Rome Open City or something. I can't remember. And so I went with a friend to see Bicycle Thieves. And I'm sitting there and we're waiting. And I hear these two kids talking in front of me. And they're saying, yeah, yeah, this guy, you know, Vittorio De Sica, he's like the Steven Spielberg of Italian cinema. And, you know, and we started, my friend and I, who was also uh, studying Italian, kind of laughed. But if you sort of think about it, it's really not a bad comparison in the sense that both of them feature very prominently children in a lot of their films. Mm. Uh, One of Desica's very early films was a film called The Children Are Watching Us. Uh, from 1943. Okay. Uh, he made Shoeshine, right, right, also featuring kids. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I've sort of been thinking about it. We, we kind of giggled at the time, but in thinking about it, you know, maybe there's actually something to that. Um, but so I saw it on the big screen, which was great. And I think this film is important. Well, as a film historian, it's really impossible to teach film history without showing Bicycle Thieves. I mean, it's a foundational text in so many ways for its style, uh, for its content, uh, for its context, 
uh, all three of those things, uh, which I'll talk about, I guess, in the course of the interview. Um, but it's also really important for scholars of Italian, Italian cinema, um, and Italian history, because it represents a period of really intense creativity linked to political and social renewal in Italy after fascism and World War II. I think the historical context is really important for understanding the true significance of the film, right? In 1943, Italy had just finished what had been 20 years of uh, fascist dictatorship, um, followed by two years of civil war, more or less, between the remaining fascists and the Nazis versus the partisans. Then you had a period between 1945 and 1948 of political struggle for control of the country between the Christian Democrats, many of whom were former fascists, and the socialists slash communists, many of whom were former partisans. And this was a real difficult period for Italy. Uh, it was really decimated by the war, uh, in particular the northern region and the southern region too. Uh, so I think Bicycle Thieves is an important, in a certain way, monument to that period in Italian history. Oh, thanks for that historical context. That really adds uh, a deeper layer than I was even expecting. And, and of course, you being, by virtue of uh, you not only studying this film, but it sounds like uh, Italian history, being fluent in Italian, visiting the country, it sounds like uh, you are the perfect guest for this podcast. So I'm very appreciative of that. My next question is, why is this movie worth celebrating all these years later? Jackie, why does it still matter and how has it stood the test of time? Well, I think it's a film about universal values, right? It's a film about the family. It's a film about economic struggle. It's a film about relationships. It's a film about alienation. It's a film about unemployment. It's a film about many things that viewers experience regardless of time period or cultural or na national context. Neorealism in many ways was a way of filmmaking that highlighted social injustice. And there's so many ways that the film tells that story. The story of the kind of universality, the commonality of the plight. If I can, I'd like to point to one scene in the film where uh, the couple, right, Antonio and Maria, pawn their sheets right, to get the bicycle back so he can get the job. That's right. So, of course, right, you know, thinking, well, we don't need sheets to sleep on is already somewhat difficult to understand or sort of puts you in their position of how dire their straits are. But then when they pawn the sheets, right, what happens? They, they hand the sheets in, they get a little bit of, they get some money and then they get the bicycle back. And as they're about to get the bicycle, you could, you could see Antonio's head through the window. Um, you see the clerk who had originally taken their sheets walking across the screen and then stopping at what are just piles and piles of sheets on these shelves and these stacks all along the wall. And if that's not enough, right, what happens? The camera tilts up and you keep seeing how high these sheets are. So it's a question of, it's not just him pawning his sheets, but how many people have pawned their sheets? Good point. During the course of this period. So of course, right, it goes back to, you think of the really famous shot in the opera sequence of Citizen Kane when you have the debut and in one shot right after his mistress starts singing it tilts up right and you see the reaction of the sort of the workers on across the stage holding their nose right so it's a very sort of similar kind of aesthetic of how you communicate something without sound just using the aesthetic practices of cinema yes that's a good point why else does this film still matter today? Well, it speaks to a particular creative enterprise in Italian cinema. And note that I don't refer to neorealism as a movement because you can't really call it a movement because there's really sort of no manifesto. I mean, there were articles and books and 
essays on it, but most of them were written after, like Andre mm-hmm. Bazin by Andre Bazin and others. Right. Um, so I think it's sort of a convergence of artists and not just filmmakers, right? We think about literature. Uh, Elio Vittorini wrote a very famous novel called Conversations in Sicily. Italo Calvino starts writing his uh, books around this time. There's uh, photography. There's art. And basically, the idea behind this kind of convergence was to find a new language of expression across the arts to express or sort of give voice to some of the major issues of the time, right? To find a new way, a new language of dealing with pressing social, political and uh, ideological problems, right? Mm-hmm. How to expose and explore the rhetorical lies of the fascist period and confront the social reality of the present. And it, like I said, it's not really a movement, but kind of, like I said, a convergence on what the goals and the purposes of post-war cinema uh, should be and a search for a new cinematic style. And there's a lot of myths associated with neorealism, and maybe we can get into that at another time. But this idea that you should tell a realistic story in a popular setting with social content uh historical truth, Mm -hmm. and a political commitment. And so I think in that sense, what you see is a sort of fusion of form and content, not just what kind of story do you tell, Mm -hmm. but how do you tell it that really represents an incredible period of filmmaking. Like earlier films in the Italian neorealism subgenre, this movie is shot in near documentary style, right? It's shot on location. It often uses non-actors or non-professionals. The subjects are typically working class people and the impoverished. The film attempts, uh, this one and others, they, they attempt to depict true poverty and economic hardship as it really was in one city at a given time in history. And in this case, it's post-war Rome and, and this year is 1948, which had been bombed out and crippled following the war. So it's definitely of a time and place, which is important. And some of the messages of neorealism films, they're often bleak, realistic, plausibly pessimistic, without a glossy coating, without sentimentalizing and tacked on happy endings, right? There's kind of a deliberate focus away from big name stars or complex psychological themes and issues and intricate plots and action. What would you say about some of the tenets or hallmarks of neorealism and why it's important to understand those to maybe get a proper context and appreciation of Bicycle Thieves? Well, I think you mentioned many of them. Being a film scholar, right, I'm going to nuance some of them for you. Please. Um, so there's, you know, this, there's a lot of myths associated with neorealism. And one of them is this idea of the non-professional actor. Mm. You know, one of the things is that it's actually there are professional actors in the mix here. They're not all non-professional actors. I see. Okay. If you go back to, say, a film like Rome Open City, which people often consider the the beginnings of, or the first real neorealist film. You can make a couple arguments that there were a couple before. Um, you have Anna Magnani or Aldo Fabrizi, right, who were two of the biggest actors at the time. Good point. Uh, I think that's really important to kind of keep in context. That's there's a casual mix, and let's also not forget who's behind the camera here. Right. Vittorio De Sica was one of the most popular actors in the 1940s and 40s in Italy. Um, He made a whole series of films, which some people actually call proto-neorealist films, uh, with Mario Camerini, uh, the great director, in which he played kind of this average, everyday, uh, lower middle class guy. Here you have a really skilled actor who is able to get these incredible performances out of his uh, non-professional actors Mm -hmm. because he himself has that kind of professional training, among other reasons. And so I think that's it's really important to understand. In terms of that kind of 
feel of a documentary. I would probably sort of that that realistic kind of gritty feel. I think here it's owed really very much to Rome. And if you think about who are the main characters in this film, mm-hmm. right? And this is another hallmark of neorealism is that very rarely do you have a single protagonist in a neorealist film. It's usually a group of people, again, reinforcing that kind of notion of solidarity or lack thereof here in this case. Mm-hmm. So who are the characters in this film, the main characters? You have Antonio, you have Bruno, you have his wife. You could even argue that the city of Rome is a character. It's in every single scene. And you might even argue that the bicycle is a character in the film. Sure. Right? So I think that's a really important tenet of neorealism that often gets uh, overlooked. Mm -hmm. One of the things that is, I think, a goal of neorealism is this idea, this preservation of objectivity. André Bazin, the French film theorist, later described uh, neorealism as sort of perfect film, right? And he thought of Bicycle Thieves as as a perfect film, is, is one that measures and minimizes the margin of loss of the real in cinematic representation. So if we could think about the ways that this is, you know, we see things as they happen, right? Think of how many shots in the film are actually of street corners and intersections. True, yeah. Without any editing. Maybe the camera um, pans a little bit, Mm -hmm. but that's about it. And you see those from afar. So that kind of mimics the sort of eye level concrete point of view, right? That kind of window on the world aesthetic that Zavatini talks about. So I think those are really important qualities that we have to remember, but also, and we could talk about this later, particularly in the last scene, there's really complicated editing in Bicycle Thieves. Uh, You might not think about it, Mm -hmm. uh, but particularly when Antonio has to steal the bike or when he's about to steal the bike and how does the film create suspense in is he or isn't he going to take it? Because I don't know about you, Eric, every time I watch this film, I say to myself, no, don't do it. Don't take the bike. Absolutely. I'm talking to the screen too. I'm, I'm like, no, please don't. Yeah. What are you doing? And then, and then, but again, I tell you, I, I, I often ask myself, well, if I was in that situation, maybe I would be tempted. Right. And you have to ask yourself, why are we screaming at the scene? Right? Are we screaming at the scene just because we identify with the story? Yes. Or is that scene shot and edited in such a way for us to really feel Antonio's torture? And I would argue that it is. Absolutely, because there's a lot of back and forth with the, the editing kind of quickens back and mm-hmm. forth to his expression, back to the bike. He's kind of looking around, seeing if other people are watching. We're we're doing the same. There's a rhythm there that kind of pulses and quickens. And I think you just laid out a great example of how editing is so important in a movie like this. And you wouldn't necessarily think of something so controlled like the filmmaker's editing style in something like neorealism, which supposedly is is supposed to be more organic and kind of naturalistic or realistic or what have you. But the truth is, as you laid out earlier, yes, it's often thought of as non-professional actors and so forth. But these neorealism movies, and this one in particular, draws on some of the characteristics of classic Hollywood filmmaking, too. Would you agree? Oh, absolutely. And that's a really important point. So I go back to that original quote that I had, the story that I began with about Steven Spielberg, who also is in that incredible vein of editing for suspense. And, you know, think about the opening sequence of Raiders of the Lost Ark, for instance, right? Which is something actually, when I teach this film, sometimes I'll pair it with that scene so that they could sort of feel the emotional impact of editing and this notion of suspense and how suspense can have different types of affect on the audience. So what were some of the ways in which this film kind of draws on the Hollywood experience? Well, I think certainly the soundtrack. This is a soundtrack that is pretty intrusive and it cues you in on how you're supposed to feel at certain moments. I would also say, you know, remember that the poster that Richie is hanging up is of Rita Hayworth, right, in Gilda. 
um, although maybe not Gilda, but it's certainly of Rita mm. Hayworth. And so I think in that sense, it's a kind of love-hate relationship with Hollywood, as many of the neorealist films had. They tried to defy some of these conventions, but, you know, it's it's really hard to get away from a classical three-act narrative. We could probably even break this film down into a three-act structure pretty easily in terms of turning points and plot points and midpoints. I think you're right. I also think that, in a sense, Bicycle Thieves was neorealism's biggest hit, right? It was a blockbuster. It made a lot of money. And it kind of destroys the sort of the myth of neo the realism is that they were really successful. This is just one of the few examples. Uh, most films were not successful at the box office, at least nationally. Also, they were not the majority of films made between 1945 and 1954. And I would encourage some of your listeners to go out and search out. I know Criterion has a really great collection of a whole series of melodramas that were made in this period uh, by Raffaele Matarazzo. And those films sort of tell a similar story about post-war Italy, but with a more melodramatic key. And although I would say that this film does not have a happy ending, mm -hmm. it has a satisfactory ending in the sense that there is closure at the end of the film, albeit very sad, when Bruno and his father walk off hand in hand. So this was also a period of time in Hollywood where you didn't necessarily have to have a happy end. If we think of sort of one of the greatest examples of classical Hollywood cinema, right? We think of Casablanca. Casablanca, you know, Rick doesn't get the girl. That's right. But it has a satisfactory ending. Yes. Or let's think about another sort of type of film that was uh, retroactively named, but film noir. This is a period in where we have The Postman Always Rings Twice and Double Indemnity and In a Lonely Place. Those are films that definitely don't have happy endings. And actually, Postman Always Rings Twice, wasn't that story kind of adapted for Italian neorealism in Ossession? That's right. And that was the first literary adaptation of A Postman Always Rings Twice. Um, and that's the 1943 film, which some say is the first neorealist film. And that's by Lucchino Visconti, who, of course, went on to make the other neorealist classic, La Terra Trema, The Earth Shakes. Mm -hmm. That's a really fascinating film, also because it played for about all of five days before the <laughs> censors took it away. <laughs> I think it was made in 42 and released in 43, but it didn't play for very long. And, got a, and like many films, wasn't really shown until after the war. So why should we care about neorealism today? That's a really good question. I think that we wouldn't have a lot of the kind of filmmaking and a kind of daring filmmaking that we see mm -hmm. without people ready, willing to take chances. So neorealism was a period in which filmmakers were ready to take chances. Mm -hmm. And they were t ready to take chances beyond the traditional classical Hollywood paradigm. That is not to say, of course, that Bicycle Thieves and other films uh, don't borrow from Hollywood cinema. They clearly do. But it's an example of how filmmakers took chances, right? And tried to find new ways to tell stories. And we're still praising that. Yeah. So we're still seeing it resonate in pop culture and mm -hmm. modern productions and things like that. But I just want to chime in on my answer to this question, too, if I could. To me, there's not much action or plot here. This is a very simple but effective narrative that evokes a strong emotional reaction in viewers, primarily from its visual poetry and nonverbal storytelling. To me, that that's very meaningful. The father and the son, along with nearly everyone else in the cast, as you mentioned, they're not professional actors, and that's a, that's kind of a hallmark of neorealism. These are just everyday people, right? So marvel at how expressive their faces are and how natural their acting is. To me, you know, the character of the stalwart and compassionate Bruno, the son, and what we see him observe and react to, that's what helps give the film extra power and resonance, too. And the film does attempt to make a political statement from all I've gathered here. The statement that we should be more concerned with our fellow man and that a fairer political system should exist that provides greater opportunities to everyday people. And yet the film is not so much about the hardships of poverty or the quest to reclaim a stolen bike, per se, but rather it's maybe about the relationship between a father and his boy. 
Oh, I definitely concur, certainly about this idea of not much action or plot. And that is actually one of the main tenets of neorealism, is that it should be a very simple story taken from everyday life. Although it should be noted that Bicycle Thieves is a literary adaptation. That's true. Right? It's based on a novel. And this idea of nonverbal storytelling also, I think, is really important. One of the important collaborators of neorealism, uh, Cesare Zavattini, who wrote many of the screenplays, including this one, or worked on, he was a collaborator, on many of the screenplays of Vittorio De Sica's great films. Mm. And, um, you know, believed in this notion of what's in Italian is called pedinamento, P-E-D-I-N-A-M-E-N-T-O. And pedinamento was this idea that cinema should come or the story should come from everyday life mm. and cinema should be a kind of window on the world right like he believed that you know you should, the best films were ones where you'd kind of place a camera down and the action would happen in front of it yes. now he made a couple films like that and they were terrible films because the reason is that that's not how you make a film <laughs> right but you can have a simple story mm. and this notion of visual poetry that you talk about is really quite astute because there is a a lot of very fancy camera work, very fancy editing, and a very important mise-en-scene, particularly involving deep focus. So while the story is supposed to be simple, have minimal editing, preference for eyeline, long takes, long shots, scenes can be very, very complicated. Maybe I can give an example. At the end of the film, the father and the son find themselves in total despair. And the father plans to steal a bike. It's the only way he could get his bike back. Right. And Eric, do you remember the scene um, in the piazza where, or in front of the building where he's about to go in and he sees, well, where he sees the bike in front of the building, right? right? Yep. And it's a long shot, right? And there's a very thin, there's a shadow of a lamppost, which divides the frame in half. Mm. And he's hesitating. He's trying to decide whether he's actually going to do it or when he's going to do it. And he literally has to cross a line to go and steal that bike. That's, I think, what you're talking about in terms of that visual poetry. Yes. Um, and I think that's a really stunning example of, again, a, a scene with no dialogue, mm -hmm. um, uh, nonverbal storytelling, but this very tortured image of a father who is desperate. Yeah, it's just so heart-wrenching. And another great gift of the film is that you put yourself in that father's shoes, and especially if you are a father yourself, I am. And I think, what would I do in that situation if I have to feed my family? Am I willing to go that far? What kind of message is this going to send to my son? It's just so poignant and so touching and just, again, heart-wrenching that I think it speaks to almost any viewer. Mm -hmm. And it, puts your, it forces you to kind of identify with that protagonist, put yourself in his shoes and ask yourself, what would I do? And that's a testament to a great film to me, one that, mm -hmm. that so involves you in the moral quandary of its main subject that you can't help but feel like you're part of this problem. And, and again, how are you going to solve it if you were there? Again, it's, it just speaks to the power of Bicycle Thieves. I want to ask you, in what ways do you think this film was influential on cinema and popular culture or set trends? Now here, you had already kind of riffed on this a little bit earlier, but we'll have a little fun with this too. I think when we think about certainly uh, movements such as uh, Cinema Verite, uh, certain kinds of documentary filmmaking, a, a film like The Naked City in, I think that's from 1950 uh, in the United St States is clearly influenced by neorealism. Certainly some of Ray's films in India clearly hark back to Italian neorealism. Yeah, like uh, Pater Pakali, for exactly, example. Exactly, yes. exactly. Thinking even into the 1950s, like Luigi Bunuel's Los Olvidados, The Forgotten Ones, uh, a film he made in Mexico. Uh, think of some of the great Brazilian films of the 70s and 80s, like Pichot, 
those films, I think, were clearly influenced by Bicycle Thieves. It's referenced in popular culture mm-hmm. and in Robert Altman's The Player, ironically, <laughs> as, you know, a real film, right? Oh, that's a great movie. That's a real movie. And then in the wonderful, I think it's season two of Master of None, when in the first uh, episode or the second episode, when his he's in Italy and his phone gets stolen. And so he goes around looking for his phone uh, because he wants to call a girl. Now, the ideological message is completely off, but nevertheless, it's sort of from an aesthetic point of view and it's shot in black and white. And I'm going to go back to Spielberg here. There are so many shots that we see from Bruno's point of view. So thinking about E.T., um, other films in which you see things from a child's perspective, I think in many ways goes back to Bicycle Thieves. I wish we had had more influence in American cinema of the way in which we cast children in roles because sometimes they're so artificial and cast for their cuteness rather than for this kind of aura of authenticity that Bicycle Thieves encapsulates. Yeah, no, that's a good point. I mean, the character of Bruno is just so incredible. It's it's kind of the centerpiece of the film to me, especially morally, uh, because as you said, we see things through his eyes. And yet he's so mature for his age, and he kind of has to be, right? Because this is how life is probably for many children. They kind of have to go to work and help their family and struggle along with mom and dad, et cetera. So I, I think you're absolutely right. It would have influenced, obviously, uh, filmmakers like Spielberg and others. But I, th- I think you said something there a moment ago that I never really thought about. We don't see enough films for adults, that is, where a child is the main character and we're seeing things from their perspective. Oftentimes things are kiddieized or sentimentalized. We'll get child actors in adult films. But I mean, I think there's a lot of power and resonance that can be demonstrated uh, if you write a really smart child character like this. And it just goes to show, I think it's just a testament to, you know, obviously great writing, great filmmaking, and of course, stellar casting of this little boy. But uh, that's an excellent point you brought up. I just want to riff on a little bit some of the other pop culture references. You mentioned, of course, Setia Jit Ray, Fellini, Antonioni, but also directors of the French New Wave that would come a decade later. So I never thought about that before, but it's been brought up in film literature that the Godards and the Truffauts, I guess they took some inspiration from a movie like this. There was a lot written about Bicycle Thieves in Cahiers du Cinéma and, and other neorealist films, particularly by André Bazin and others during this period. So in the 40s, when filmmakers like Truffaut and Godard were beginning their film practice. And someone like Truffaut in particular, right? You think of the 400 Blows. That's a really good example of where you see the influence of someone like Jessica. Oh yeah, they were clearly familiar with his work and they loved it. Consider that several more modern movies drew influence from Bicycle Thieves. Now you mentioned Altman's The Player. There's also a film called Rockers from the late 70s, Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Right. (laughs) Trying to get his bicycle back, right? Children of Heaven is another movie. I think it's an Indian film, if I'm not mistaken. Life is Beautiful. The Benini film uh, was supposedly a, a movie that drew heavy influence from this. And a film called Beijing Bicycle. It's a Chinese movie. But again, these are some of the more modern examples of films that were inspired by, drew influence from Bicycle Thieves. So Jackie, what's the moral to the story in Bicycle Thieves? What themes or messages are explored in this movie? Well, I think you were right when you said that Bruno in many ways is the moral and ethical dimension of the film. And I think it's a pretty brutal moral that the world is an unfair and uncaring place and that we're all victims. And a lot of times you get sort of things kind of wrapped up at the end of a film saying, well, at least we have each other and family is important, right? Think about a film like Up in the Air Mm -hmm. that was made during the financial crisis when people were losing their jobs, right? And they had all these on-camera sort of video essays almost of an interview saying, oh, well, at least we have our family. And this film says it a little bit, but, you know, in that the two walk off hand in hand, but they walk off hand in hand as faces in the crowd. And here you could see the influence of King Vidor's The Crowd as well. 
So it's not a really hopeful message in the film. And I think that's a really important thing to compare it to, because let's say if you compare the endings of Bicycle Thieves and Rome Open City, Mm -hmm. right? Rome Open City also has kids walking off, holding hands together, but it's a much more hopeful kind of image in the sense that they're on a hillside overlooking Rome and the Vatican and that they are the future. And here we just see them, you know, that solidarity is kind of gone. The individual is alienated from social institutions and the bureaucrats who run them. I hate to say it, but it's a pretty depressing ending with not much hope. Some themes I've identified as important in this movie include the power of family unity and love over materialism, capitalism, and suffering, the search for hope and faith, not necessarily religious faith, but perhaps faith in humanity, in a world that seems faithless. Consider that Antonio is hunting for a fides bicycle, with the word fides meaning faith in Italian. Social conscience is another message of the picture. It's our duty as neighbors or acquaintances or citizens or even bystanders to help our fellow man regardless of his social stature. And class struggle is an obvious one here. This is a film about the division and disparity among social classes. We're shown how post-war Italy classes coexist, including the poor, the bourgeois, and the rich. So who do you think this film appealed to initially when it was released in 1948? And then who do you think it appeals to today? And if that appeal has changed, what does that say about the film's impact, influence, and legacy? Initially, this film had universal appeal, right? I think people who saw it in Italy could relate to it. I think people who saw it in France could relate to it. I think people who saw it in Germany could relate to it in the sense that they were all suffering in the post-war period. And I think because of the universality of its message and the commonality of the plight that the protagonists experienced, I think in the United States as well, it, it was a very big hit. People went to see this film and I think it appeals to the same people. I show this in my to my students, and they're incredibly moved by this story. And some of them start crying also at the end of the film. I don't think that has changed in terms of who it appeals to. Mm-hmm. I think it represents, though, a very different vision of what film's purpose was and what kind of stories it should tell and how it should tell them. It's a film that's about a moment in time post-war Italy, but it's also timeless. But for that matter, what elements from this movie have aged well and what elements maybe are showing some wrinkles? Now, for my point, I just want to chime in. It's hard to fault a film for being dated that is such a specific time capsule of a time and a place in the 20th century, which is what? Immediate post-war Italy. The struggles of the everyday people are forever stamped into this film, and that, to me, feels above criticism. But nevertheless, are there any elements from this movie that, eh, you know, you're looking back say that really dates it to that period of filmmaking i thought about this and i tried to find fault in this film and i really couldn't find anything okay maybe the mother a little bit you know would they really pawn their sheets but then we see how many people pawn their sheets it's like Tzika answers that question for us right in zavatini they answer that question. oh i, I think i totally bought that i mean that to me is like you know, one of the most heart-wrenching parts of the film. They're not going to have sheets to sleep on. She has to do her part right. to sacrifice for the family, and that's what she does. And and the exasperation on her face, you know, like she's got to tear these sheets off quickly. But it's almost like it, there's no hesitation. Take the sheets. The only part that seemed a little hokey is the scene when they go off to work together Mm -hmm. for the first time. That maybe with the music and them all happy and that's probably the only thing I could possibly say maybe seems a little dated. But it's it's hard to nitpick this film. I agree. Do you agree? I mean, I really had a hard time. It feels unimpeachable to me. It feels like one of those timeless classics that I'm sorry, it's just a above reproach. I can't really find fault either. So I think we should move on. So this is a birthday celebration after all, and birthdays are all about presents, except it's the fans who continue to get the gifts. So Jackie, what is Bicycle Thieves' greatest gift to viewers? I think it represents a unified way of filmmaking in which form and content blend into a seamless masterpiece. 
I mean, really, if you think about it, it tells a story and it chooses a different style of filmmaking to tell that story. And it knows when to have long takes and long shots, and it knows when to build suspense with the editing. It knows when to use deep focus so that you can not only see how poor the Ricci family is in their apartment, but you can look through their window and see everybody else in the neighborhood. The film is in Roman dialect. It's not in standard Italian. And that was a, also a real tenet of neorealism, a belief that you should speak in dialect. Dialects were forbidden during the fascist period. The idea was to Italianize the people. And they used popular media like film, like radio, to Italianize. So, for example, dubbing practices, right? Dubbing gets its start in Italy during the fascist period and still exists today. It's a huge industry. It's very hard to go see a film with subtitles, an American film with subtitles in Italy. Most of the stuff is dubbed. So the fact here that in this film and others that they speak in Roman dialect is extremely important because it's a linguistic realism that previous films made during the fascist period did not have. For my take, Bicycle Thieves is consistent and believable in its approach to realism, with the exceptions that we talked about. There are some classic Hollywood narrative kind of constructs and devices, techniques they use, of course, the editing and the score and all of those things we, we mentioned. But there is no contrived happy ending or resolution, and bad things happen to good people. And to me, what a great gift that is, the truth. So even though this may not be like a documentary per se, it feels real to me because it isn't afraid to not be sentimental. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a great gift because too often, especially movies of this period, you're talking about you know the 1940s, no matter what corner of the world the film is coming from, you often have movies that are kind of sentimentalized. They're exaggerated. They're often not reflections closer to real life. And to me, it's more than a time capsule. It's something that is evergreen and will stand the test of time. Do you think this movie will still be widely watched and considered relevant in another 70 years? Now, you and I may not be here, but others will, hopefully, if the planet isn't blown up. And are they going to be watching Bicycle Thieves? And if so, why? Absolutely. First of all, it's at this point, it's written into the canon of film history. Not that it can't be unwritten, but um, you don't have a film book, you know, film history book, textbook without mentioning it. I think it will stand the test of time. This is a film with universal values. It's about a father and a son. It's about a family. It's about poverty. It's about the struggle to survive. It's about the struggle to put food on the table. It's about the powerlessness of the individual in the face of government. And I think it's also a beautiful film. It's a film that you can also watch on the small screen as well as the big screen. Mm. Maybe some film scholars will shoot me for wanting to say, to say this, but I watched it, you know, I didn't watch it on my, my iPhone, but, you know, in reviewing this, I watched it on a computer and I still felt that emotional pull. I think that that has something to do with it. When we think about you know, films that stand the test of time, are they going to be able to adapt to different media, different viewing practices mm -hmm. that are constantly changing? I mean, who knows? Next time, you know, someone does a, for the 80th anniversary, we might be watching this all with, from a chip in our brain. God, I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> but I get where you're coming from. And I think that's uh, well put. So Jackie, what are you currently working on that listeners should check out? Well, mostly I'm actually sort of involved in oral history projects, and I'm going for the first time behind the camera uh, and filming some things. So this has been really exciting for me. I'm working on an oral history project uh, in based in the Bronx. I co-direct the Bronx Italian American History Initiative, which interviews people who grew up, Italians and Italian Americans who grew up in the Bronx, and get them to talk about their histories and uh, make derivative projects out of these uh, things, such as films, uh, podcasts, we're hopefully going to do a podcast ourselves, digital maps, sort of venturing into new territory, uh, kind of like Desica, finding new ways to tell Very stories. Very exciting. These are all within the confines of the university or are these private projects? 
No, these are actually public projects. It's public community history. You can find out about me at JacquelineReich.com. That's where I post my work. I've done other interviews. I actually did another interview, a a TV show on Rome Open City. Is that through your website? They can learn more about that? Yeah, there's a link on my website for that. Very, very cool. Listen, I want to thank you again for your time. Uh, You were very gracious and forthcoming and insightful and eloquent and wonderful. We, uh, We couldn't have picked a better guest for this episode of Cineversary. So thank you so much. Well, thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Kudos again to Professor Reich for participating in this month's podcast. Now it's time for Standing Ovations. This is where I give a shout out to a movie, book, website, TV program, podcast, or other work that I think would be of interest to classic film lovers. My standing ovation for December, it's a book published a few years ago by Mark Scheel called Italian Neorealism, Rebuilding the Cinematic City. And it's available, of course, from Amazon. This book examines the origins and causes of neorealism, especially the consequences of World War II, and its style and its politics. Films within the movement that are explored include, of course, Bicycle Thieves, Rome Open City, Paisan, and Umberto D. It's a fascinating read that offers a deeper dive into the subgenre from a real expert on the subject, so I highly recommend it. You might have heard of author Mark Scheel, as he's also known for his video essay on the history of Italian neorealism, and this is included as one of the supplements in the Criterion Collection Blu-ray and DVD edition of Bicycle Thieves. I also want to recommend that you check out a website. It's cineversegroup.blogspot.com. Now, this is the portal for my Cineverse Film Discussion Group, which I launched 13 years ago and which continues to meet weekly in the South Suburban Chicago area. Cineverse is a democratic film society that watches and then discusses a predetermined movie that our members pick on a rotating basis. At cineversegroup.blogspot.com, and Cineverse is spelled C-I-N-E-V-E-R-S-E, You can hear podcast recordings of our group discussions and read more about the films that we study. The reason I created Cineverse and this podcast you're listening to is really just to foster an appreciation for an intelligent dialogue about memorable films. To me, watching a movie, yes, it's fun, of course. But interpreting it, talking about it, sharing opinions and theories about it, that's even more enjoyable. I find the real pleasure is in digging deeper to learn how and why a film was made, the impact it's had on culture, society, and other movies, why that film has the power to evoke a strong emotional reaction in each of us, and what it can teach us today. We also have a Cineversary Podcast Facebook page, and that's at facebook.com slash Podcast. You can go there for more information on current or future episodes. You can post a comment or a suggestion there for a memorable movie, maybe about to celebrate a major anniversary that you think would be worthy of an episode of this podcast. And if you do go there, please like us on Facebook, too. Now, if you'd like to email me a comment or a suggestion, you can get a hold of me, Eric Martin, at cineversegroup at gmail.com. Also, please spread the good word about this show to your kith and kin. And if you like this podcast, leave us good reviews on whatever platform you hear it from, especially iTunes. We really appreciate that. Finally, don't miss our January episode of Cineversary. That's when we'll celebrate the 50th birthday of Midnight Cowboy, originally released in 1969. Before I get out of here, a special thanks to Rocky Martin for performing the outro music to our show, which is a rendition of Waves of the Danube by composer Josef Ivanovich, better known in the 20th century as the Anniversary Waltz. This has been your humble host, Eric Martin, reminding you to butter up that popcorn, live a big screen surround sound life, and cherish those classic movies because they're not getting older, folks. They're getting better. Thanks again for giving us a listen. 